2: I'm Mick Garris, and this is a very special edition of the Postmortem Podcast. One of the most important figures in the history of horror films is Roger Corman. He always worked outside the studio system and was quite a renegade filmmaker, as well as discovering amazing talents who, like Roger, made incredibly consequential contributions to the world of cinema in general, but in particular to the world of horror cinema. Just a week or so ago, Beyond Fest and the American Cinematheque honored Corman with a full day of his movies, capped off by an hour-long conversation with the 97-year-old Roger and five of the graduates of Corman University, John Davison, Joe Dante, Alan Arkish, Amy Holden-Jones, and Ron Howard. I was honored to be the moderator of this stellar and historic panel, and we're excited to bring this fascinating conversation to you here on Postmortem. A bit of caution, because it was a live event and seven people were using microphones, some of our sound levels may not be of the best quality, but after a while, you're never going to notice. So let's all gather together at the Arrow Theater, home of the American Cinematheque, for this loving tribute to an amazing filmmaker and patron of the cinematic arts. I'm Mick Garris, and... Thank you. We are here to celebrate the amazing career of one of the most important figures in Hollywood history, Mr. Roger Corman. We have been joined by a a quite esteemed group of filmmakers to help celebrate. First, director of Grand Theft Auto, Ron Howard. Coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> the director of Piranha, Joe Dante. The director of Rock and Roll High School, Alan (laughs) Arkish. The director of Slumber Party Massacre, Amy Holden-Jones. The producer of Piranha, John Davison. Uh, And the director of The Raven, Mr. Roger Corman. screenwriter, director, producer, mogul, and card-carrying SAG member, Mr. Roger Cohn. So Roger, you were born in Detroit, but came at a very early age to Los Angeles. You went to Beverly Hills High School. And you also went on to study industrial engineering and got a Bachelor of Sciences degree in industrial engineering. How did that right brain stuff turn to left brain movie making? Well, what
3: happened, I was writing for the Stanford Daily. And I found out that the critics on the Stanford Daily got free passes to all the theaters around (laughs) Palo Alto. So I became a critic and got free passes. And then, as a critic, I started thinking more seriously about uh, motion pictures. And despite the fact that my degree was in engineering, I felt uh, I wanted to uh, make motion pictures.
2: One sec. Roger? Yes, Julie? Hold the mic up more. Oh. The mic closer, please. Oh, here. So your brother had been an agent. And your approach was you worked in the mailroom at Fox. But you started out as a writer, a screenwriter. You wrote Highway Dragnet. Tell me how that began and how that led to The Monster from the Ocean Floor, the grand sum of Uh,
3: $12,000. I wrote this script, which I call The House in the Sea. But they changed the title to Highway Dragnet, because Dragnet was a big thing. And uh, I said to uh, the producer, I would uh, wo- work for nothing <coughs> as his assistant if I could learn what he was doing. So I learned from that. And <coughs> I produced uh, two pictures. And I saw what the directors, I had no training as a director whatsoever. I Uh, Saw what the directors were doing and I thought I can do that So, (laughs) On on the third picture with no training whatsoever I directed a picture called Five Guns West and the picture turned out to be successful and suddenly people were hiring me as a Director and uh, I was essentially learning as I went along (laughs)
2: <laughs> and you've never stopped. I mean, here you have this amazing, industrious career that has been decade upon decade upon decade, and here you are with all of these esteemed filmmakers whose careers got a big jump start. So, Ron, how did yours? You were a very successful actor uh, in The Music Man as a kid, uh, as Opie on The Andy Griffith Show. You made the transition to Young Adult with uh, American Graffiti and then on to Happy Days, yeah. but you decided... you. Accepted an offer from Roger to act in Eat My Dust because you were able to direct a film. Um, I, di-
3: I didn't hear. Can you? What, what we're
2: talking you? to uh, Ron Howard about what? about how you influenced what? his career. Oh,
4: uh, well, pardon me. If I, I sort of told this story a little bit when I introduced the movie, but I'll do a, a brief version here. I missed the, it. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. Uh, the, uh, I had always wanted to direct. I mean, literally, by the time I was eight or nine years old, I knew that I, w- I wanted to be a director. But everybody thought that was kind of uh, adorable. Uh, <laughs> people weren't coming from sitcoms and becoming directors. Kid actors weren't becoming directors. That just wasn't, you know, really s- something that was happening in the system.
2: Well, Desi Lu had a program for training, right, that you were a part of when you were young.
4: No, I, there really wasn't. It, it became that. I made it that. Uh, by just asking a million questions, and the directors on the show had all been actors. So by the time I was 10 or so, they were all saying, well, I think you're gonna wind up being a director. Look how curious you are about everything. And, uh, uh, but, I, you know, I went to USC film school for a while, but then you know, I wound up on Happy Days, and I kind of left school, but I was trying to make movies independently, and I was writing scripts. I wasn't really making the headway that I wanted to make, but the show was very successful. And the, the, the script came to me uh, for Eat My Dust, and with I... an important
2: exclamation mark in the title. It, with the,
4: yes, well, it, I'm not sure it was there on the script, but maybe it was. <laughs> uh, and, and I read it, and I thought, I didn't really like it very much, uh, I, uh, but, but I certainly knew who Roger Corman was, and I knew the kinds of breaks that he had given so many filmmakers. I actually had a movie, a script, that my dad and I had written, and, and I thought I had half the financing from Australia. If I could get North American distribution and the other $150,000, I thought we could make this movie. So I went into this meeting with Roger about Eat My Dust. And I said, Roger, I, I, to be honest, I don't really like Eat My Dust very much. But I, what I really want to do is direct. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and you know he was sort of the first one who didn't patronize the idea. Uh, I said I had made a couple of short films and he wanted to look at those. I had this script I gave him. He said, well, let me read it. Came back, we had a meeting about a week later. He said, well, this is a character piece. This is a little more of an art house piece. Um, uh, this is not really what I'm doing, uh, but I looked at your films, I read the script. You know, I, I believe you could, you could do it. Um, and you know, if you'll act in Eat My Dust, I won't promise that you can direct a movie, but I will promise that you could direct second unit. And that would be the default. And in between, I would also give you a chance to write a script. And uh, if you came up with something that I wanted to make, I'd make it. And uh, at the end of the day, Eat My Dust wound up being, I was kind of wrong about it. I thought it was pretty great. I thought Chuck Griffith did a great job with it. And Roger said, uh, okay, well, let's come in and talk about your ideas. I went in and I pitched all kinds of things, noir, thrillers, sci-fi, all kinds of things. And finally Roger said, um, uh, well, those are all very interesting, but um, I'm very interested in young people on the run and car crash pictures, as was Eat My Dust. And when we were testing titles for Eat My Dust, there was a, a title that came in a very close second Grand Theft Auto <laughs> yes. if
0: well,
4: you can fashion a different. comedy that you can star in entitled Grand Theft Auto I'd probably let you make that picture and you know It wound up being the fastest green light that I ever got in Hollywood <laughs> because we did write a script and we got to make the movie
2: Roger What is your memory Yeah. And a great one and you and your father wrote the script if I'm not mistaken. my dad
4: and I wrote the script and of course all of these guys made it possible for me to not uh, fall on my face and fail. And Uh, Alan
2: was the second unit director. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
5: we played with toy cars on that table.
4: (laughs) uh, Alan shot every day that I shot There was a full second unit John was the producer Joe was the editor And, uh, you know, I was very As far as Corman World went I think they were pretty protected You know, (laughs) Corman uh, New World was protected uh, But I felt, uh, you know, really empowered And learned a hell of a lot And we've, you know, remained friends
2: Amy, where were you? (laughs)
6: Where was I? I think, I thought, I think that, what year was Eat My Dust? 77. Okay, so you were after me. I'm sorry. No, no, I was after you, rather. Sorry. Uh, 77, um, I had cut for Alan and Joe, uh, Hollywood Boulevard in 76, I think it was. 75. 75, and then... Roger fired me afterwards because there were no more trailers to cut. I had been cutting trailers for him. (laughs) I went away and became a union film editor, and I wanted to direct. And believe it or not, I was about to edit ET, and I was 26 years old. And I thought, now I'm going to be a film editor, but I want to be a director. So I went back to Roger and found a script on his shelves called Don't Open the Door. And I didn't read the whole thing. I read the first seven, eight, nine pages. It had a prologue. With action and uh, dialogue and scares and everything he needed, and uh, we shot it with four pe- a crew of four people and some UCLA actors. And Joe let me use his his editing equipment, his chem at night while he was doing Piranha. Right? I think it was, it was the Howling. It was the Howling. That right, it was the Howling. And uh, and he gave me some cues, and we did a temp dub on his chem. and I took it into Roger and. I said, look, uh, here it is. First, I think Joe called and said, I have, You have a reel of a script you own here and you haven't paid anything. <laughs> so I went into Roger and he had looked at it. And his first question, of course, was, How much does this cost? <laughs> I said, I made it for $1,000, Roger. And he said, You have a future in the business. <laughs> And I was still supposed to start doing E.T. And he said, what would it cost to make the rest of the movie? Hadn't a freaking clue. (laughs) I hadn't read the rest of the script. (laughs) And I said, $200,000. And he said, you're in pre-production. And uh, I read the rest of the script, got drunk for the first time in my life. There were problems, a lot of problems. And um, I passed on E.T. to do uh, Slumber Party Massacre. And it was the best decision I ever made.
2: So, Roger, you work with eager, young, ambitious filmmakers. What is the spark that you see in these people? You've, you've discovered so many terrific filmmakers with classic films under their belts. What is it that you are looking for? What is it that you see that makes you want to take a chance?
3: Essentially, creativity. Uh, the creativity drives the director, and uh, I'm looking for that. And I'm also look, looking, I, I tell them in addition to this, directing is hard work. I remember with Alan, I said, Alan, get a chair with your name on it and sit between shots. And Alan didn't sit between shots. <laughs> and he, had to go to the hospital with two days, de- I think it was two days, days ago. left, and yeah, then Joe, Joe came in and finished, finished, it. finished it up.
5: <laughs> yeah.
6: You told me that too. <laughs>
5: and Amy, you sent us your student film. I did. That's and so Joe and I watched your student, was it about your family? Your student
2: film was, uh, won first prize in the AFI um, Student Film Festival yes. contest. And that one of the judges was Martin Scorsese. Yes and you ended up being his assistant on Taxi Driver.
6: I did, and then I cut a documentary for him after that. And then I cut a documentary for him after that, yes. But among the many people who helped me, the top people who ever helped me, were Marty, Joe and, Joe and Allen here, and Roger Corman. And once I didn't have them behind my back, I gotta tell you, the wind was in my face after that (laughs) but this guy was incredible
2: alan you and joe both came from new jersey and were huge film fans joe had been a film journalist um, for genre magazines among uh, the box office magazines but tell me what it was when you first got into the corman organization to cut trailers in
5: well john and i went to nyu together with jonathan kaplan Jonathan got the first job of night call nurses. John was out here and I was broke. I was driving a taxi. And uh, my rock and roll days were done and John and I had dinner in the summer of 73. And he said, if you come out there, something will happen. So you
2: were the head of advertising and publicity, right, John? Yeah.
5: And so I drove, I saved up $400 and came out to LA and lived in John's front room and then in Jonathan Kaplan's garage and got a job as Joe's assistant for $50 a week. And my first day, I went to get music for the trailer of Caged Heat. And I am playing this music, I had never operated a 35 millimeter uh, movie and so I was seeing the movie out of you know, whatever reels they had singing. There's this guy standing there and I said this is really good. Uh, he says, oh, I directed it. And I said really I said the music's great. And he goes Have you ever heard of the Velvet Underground?
0: <laughs>
5: I Said yeah, he says that's John He says I'm Alan Archer. She says I'm Jonathan Demme
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: and that in that same period we then went to the lab and color corrected cries and whispers um, You know it boggles the mind because we're also doing candy striped nurses <laughs> big bad mama, and then Roger called us all to see a movie. He was very secretive we to do a trailer, and we sat down it's. Fellini's Amarcord. So that's the whole deal. That's really, you know.
2: So Roger, what was the transition from being a filmmaker? You stayed a filmmaker, but you also became your own mogul. You became your own boss. You had been working for AIP and ARC and other companies that that did not allow you to express yourself. What was that final step that made you decide, I want to run my own company? and my own future.
3: Um, well, it goes back on, uh, I made a picture for AIP. I always had a, uh, I was directing a lot of pictures for AIP and I always had a percentage of the profits. I made a picture that made too much money. <laughs> it was uh, uh, the wild angels about uh, uh, the hell's angels. It ran up this tremendous gross. And they cheated me on the profits.
2: You don't cheat Roger Corman. uh,
3: (laughs) So we finally settled that because they wanted another one. So I directed a picture called The Trip about LSD. (laughs) And that one ran up a big profit and they cheated me again on the profits. And I thought, the only way, I remember talking to Ingmar Bergman, and he felt Swen's film industry had cheated him on the profits. And I thought, well, if everybody's getting cheated on the profits from their distributor, the only thing I can do is become a distributor myself. <laughs> so I started New World Pictures. Yes. And I was going to direct. And then I realized that, as we used to say, you have to feed the dinosaur. <laughs> you have to make enough pictures so that your distribution company can function. And I determined that the best way to do that was to distribute 12 pictures a year, one picture every month. And wow. to do that, I could no longer direct. I had to produce. And so all of these people came in and directed uh, for a new world.
2: A- an amazing group of people. So Joe, you also came from New Jersey. You started cutting trailers at New World as well. And then you and Alan collaborated in making the lowest budget New World Picture with Hollywood Boulevard of $54,000 <laughs> before you would go back to make the highest budget New World Picture at $600,000 with Baran.
7: <laughs> well, uh, if it, I, as, as much fealty as we all owe Roger, Alan and I also owe John, because if it wasn't for John Davison, we would never come out to California at all. So and you
2: talked both of them into yeah. coming out to
7: L.A., right, John? <laughs> it's
1: one of the better things I've done, yes.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I'd agree with that. And uh, what was the rest of that? Well,
2: you were saying about coming out to, because of John, you came out to L.A., but we were talking about the lowest budget New World picture oh, well, to the highest budget. The, the
7: Piranha was a high-budget picture, but it was because it was a co-production with United Artists, and so ah. uh, Roger wasn't putting all the money in himself. Uh, and um, there was also a lot, more f- uh, a lot more freedom because we shot it in Texas. We shot it away from the Hollywood scene. And, uh, and one of the great things about Roger is that within the f- parameters of the things that he knows he needs to sell the movie, he gives you a tremendous amount of freedom. Uh, I mean, uh, if you if you can explain to him why there's an upside down shot of the movie and, and, he'll, and he buys it, he'll let you have an upside down shot in the movie. Uh, because I don't, I don't, almost everybody has felt that they just didn't have enough time and they didn't have enough money and they, sometimes the material wasn't quite you know, what it could have been. But for all of us, I mean, the, the, the trick was if, if you're gonna make a Women in Cages movie, you gotta make the best Women in Cages movie that you could possibly <laughs> make. And when you look at the new world pictures uh, against the competition made by some of the other uh, drive-in companies, um, they're, they're all better. They're all better quality because they're, they look better, they sound better, they're better edited. Uh, and, and Roger has an editing sense that is you know, second to none. I mean, he can, he, he can snap his fingers at the movieola and that's the right place to cut. Uh, and so the movies don't, they, they don't run they don't like, they're not like Marvel movies, they don't run two weeks. <laughs> you know, they, they, they run as long as the, it needs to tell the story. And also Roger didn't like to uh, pay for expensive film cans. So the shorter the movie was, the less cans that he would have to So if it buy. was
2: 80 minutes or under, it could be in four cans instead of five, right? It,
7: four cans was better, although it's very heavy carrying four cans. I mean, <laughs> one of the great things about digital now is that people don't have to carry the cans. <laughs>
4: And I just want to say that you know coming from the outside not not a part of the of the sort of new world Roger Corman infrastructure um, that you know while budget was always you know a concern uh, in all honesty just backing up what Joe was saying quality was the always the conversation and so it's 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 how do you how do you gain what's essential in the scene uh, and make it good but do it in a timely, responsible way, and that was a, as a young director coming in. Uh, you know, I mean, we, it was about diagramming, it was about organizing, it was about prep, it was about all these things, so that the 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 elements that are going to matter to an audience are actually as well executed as they can be.
7: And when you when you needed extras for your uh, demolition derby, uh, and there were only I don't know 50, 50, or 50 extras, and of course you want to make it look like the stands are full, and you asked Roger for more extras and he said ron i'm not going to give you more extras but if you if you do this picture correctly you'll never have to work for me again <laughs> and, he, and he also said now that's an I, apocryphal I, statement I, I, we've heard before <laughs> I, I, I i staged the battle of Thermopylae with four men and a bush <laughs> <laughs> in, in a picture called Atlas, which in fact he actually did, he had these guys go off camera, change their costumes, come back on camera, and they were—it was a whole battle of people who were actually there's just four of them. Uh, I mean, resourcefulness is the, the one thing that we learned. Is that okay? If you know, if life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And, and if we're on a set and there's something's going wrong, you have to immediately decide what to do about it. And the one thing people can say who worked for Roger was they can make decisions. They were taught to make decisions and that helped all of us when we finally got into the big leaves where you know, you know there's a lot more time and a lot more money but there's still only the same amount of money between action and cut, same amount of time between action and cut. And so it's whatever you can come up with uh, and, and we had a, a, a great lesson.
2: Ron, what was your collaborative experience like with Roger? Because he seems to be a teacher as well as your producer. Well,
4: yeah, as I said, uh, you know, there were some guidelines, and he and he he liked our script, and we had notes. We had notes with Francis, and so you know. But but they they were Francis they, Yes, yes. But they were marginal, and there was a lot of support for the project. Uh, as we, uh, you know, but it, he did say, um, you know, I I want you to shot list everything, and I said, well, I can't storyboard. And he said, well, diagram, and he showed me a way of diagramming that I still use wow. to this day, and uh, you know, and then and then he said, you know. Uh, I'm going to come visit the set on the first day, which was the, the day after my 23rd birthday was, it was uh, the first day of shooting, and he said, you know, if, if things are going well, you won't see much of me. If things are not going well, you're going to see one hell of a lot of me. <laughs> uh, and, and I was supposed to do like 28 setups that day, and by lunch, I'd only done seven. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get fired <laughs> on the first day of, of, of fulfilling my dream of of, uh, of directing. But he was very calm. Gary Graver came over, the cinematographer. We worked on it, and we got we got that day, and we made you know all, all the you know all, all the rest of our days. Um, and it was a tremendous learning experience to the point where I was talking to Alan earlier today. Uh, you know, I, I always think about those fundamental lessons that I learned along the way, in various places. But, you know, the Roger Corman School looms large. When I was making the movie Rush about 10 years ago, I thought, man, going back decades, what I learned, th- I'm so grateful for what I learned there. And believe me, I was using it almost almost every day when I was trying
5: to stage the scenes for Rush. Okay. You know, uh, Mick, you, bring up, you brought up a really good point. The profound thing is, this is the only person to run a studio who knows how to make a movie. (laughs) I mean, he would look at your rough cut and tell you, well, you're too far down the hill, you're going to lose the light. And sure enough, he's looking at, I lost the light, you know? And that sense of, where to put the camera everything to be in the editing room and have one track of sound a black and white work print and Get the kind of notes that you get whereas now they got to have a fully mixed track is you know is completely different and that's was the big gift and he really is a cinephile and I don't know how he he made this connection, but there are parts of death sport that Roger told me to take inspiration from Ivan the Terrible by Eisenstein.
2: (laughs) And it shows.
6: (laughs) Yeah, I want to add to that because there's something I tell everybody about Roger, which is one of the horribly hard things about working in the business, and I have 11 produced features, I have four that I directed, two television shows. And the vast majority of people can't tell good from bad. So you see scripts go in, not only your own, but others. And you see ones selected to go forward that are not as good as the ones that they didn't choose. You get notes on cuts that don't particularly make sense. You get reshoots that aren't fixing what's actually the problem. But mainly, the executives can't tell good from bad. Roger knew it immediately when I brought him the rewrite of Slumber Party Massacre, which, by the way, I called (laughs) Sleepless Nights. He called it Slumber Party Massacre. (laughs) Uh, And that was a smart move, obviously. Um, He read it, and he called me in. And he said, you can do this. You can write. And that was the first person who said that to me. And I don't remember any notes on that script. I don't remember hardly any notes on the cut. And then he let me, after trying to make me do some Vice movie, which I wouldn't do, he let me do the only art film, I believe, that you ever made, starring uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Amy Madigan and Rance Howard. And uh, it's called (laughs) Love Letters. And we made it for $400,000. It did the total festival circuit. And I'm very proud of it. And he didn't look at it and question and ask. You know, He said, uh, well, you've got to have either humor or sex or violence in the script. So Take I, your choice. So I gave him sex. And it worked fine. <laughs> but, uh,
2: <laughs> this was also at a time when women were not getting very many opportunities as filmmakers. But Roger's door was always open in that regard.
6: And on the crew as well. Our crew had men and women on it. Now, let's be honest. We didn't. We were cheap to, to cheap labor. There was that, but that was part of knowing good from bad. Most people at that era, it was just like, oh, women. They, you know, they can't do this. Uh, they couldn't. It's like it's like running an army. They're not generals. They can't do this. But Roger would look and see, as he did with those first ten minutes that I brought him, that you guys helped me with oh, this, she can do this, he could tell. Most people can't, they really can't. They're in the executive suites, they're making zillions of dollars and they can't tell good from bad. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we have a terrific 35 millimeter print of, of your picture and we, we ought to run it at the Cinematheque. Yeah, we should, we should, absolutely. Love letters Some Really beautiful print a Terrific movie
2: I actually hosted The screening of that At Filmex When it came out And did the moderation With Amy and Jamie nice. yeah, Way back when So and Roger
5: I gotta you, say In today's environment You had a show That went over 100 episodes exactly, yeah. The Resident And that's impossible To <laughs> A network show yeah. The hardest job In television You did it mm. I couldn't have done Any of it Without
2: this guy Not So anything. Roger You've Always been quite proud of your films having a political bent toward the left. They've been kind of a part of the New World picture
0: philosophy. uh,
3: I don't want to get politics involved, but uh, uh, there is a liberal bent uh, to the films.
2: (laughs) I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. (laughs) So, John, you were head of publicity and advertising for New World, which had to be an amazing position in charge of all the trailers being cut and, and how you lead and mislead an audience into these films. But one of the most memorable things I remember from the Brood uh, press kit was, I think you wrote the bio of Samantha Egger that was so foul and profane. <laughs> I don't think anybody noticed it in these things, but it's a memory I have, but we can skip that if you like. and.
1: I don't think anybody ever read the press books that came out of New World Pictures. Except I think for you me. could say anything <laughs>
2: and you, And you did. And part of it had to do with colleagues. But beside that point, um, <laughs> no idea, Roger
5: would come in the editing room and we'd read the trailer copy and he'd look at the trailer and he would say, can we get away with that?
7: <laughs> <laughs> Wet dreams and open
5: jeans, I remember. What. <laughs> TNT Jackson, she'll put you in traction. And my personal favorite, Ron Howard pops the clutch and tells the world to eat my dust. That's
2: great. Well, John, as a producer for Roger, it's a very different perspective. Tell me about how that worked, producing Piranha, producing um, Ron's movie, producing, Later on, you went on to produce RoboCop and, and the Paul Verhoeven movies. But tell me—I
1: learned a little bit by that. <laughs> a little.
2: I should think a whole lot. So tell me about the perspective of a producer at New World at that time.
1: It was it just the same as everyone else is saying. I mean, Roger would, would give you a script, and you know, and he and Francis Dole, who wrote the first draft of everything that came out of New World really got these pictures you know gave us the best scripts of any little independent out there and uh and, and an enormous amount of support as long as as everybody said as long as you could uh, stay on uh, schedule and on budget you know you could you could make the picture you wanted to make
2: so did you have roger over your shoulder ever or did you have a lot of freedom in that regard
1: no uh, he was he, he was only uh, over the shoulder when the picture was finished and uh, he was he would show up the first day for an hour and say hello to everybody and then go away and good luck getting that today folks
2: <laughs> so roger your films were primarily in the sci-fi and thriller and action movies, genre pictures, uh, mostly aimed at a young audience. Tell me when that revelation hit you, when you realized that was your audience.
3: I realized that uh, the major studios were turning out pictures with uh, their stars, and their stars, it takes a number of years to develop a star, and their stars, they were making pictures with a 50-year-old leading man and a 40-year-old leading lady. And I said, but the audience is young. And so uh, I went, I went on, on that basis that uh, we've got to go to uh, the, uh, the youth audience. I, I, just, I don't know if that's an exact answer to your question, however.
2: No, no, very much so. so. In, in that regard, tell me about test screenings that you would have. H- how did you operate test screenings for the New World uh, Pictures?
3: A test screening, what we would do, uh, we would put a picture uh, uh, as a test screener uh, with a picture of similar. For instance, if we had a science fiction picture, we would find a theater that was playing a science fiction picture so that we would get the uh, the reaction from the audience we were looking
4: for. But I have to say that on Grand Theft Auto, there was nothing similar playing. And so <laughs> we went to our first uh, test screening, which was at the ASI house, which is where the people would turn the dial to the right if they liked it and turn it to the left if they didn't like it. And it would create a kind of a graph. And it was used more for television shows and commercials. I'd even seen it on some of the TV shows that I'd, that I'd been a- a- around. And I walked in with my dad. This is, a, we're ner- you know, very nervous. We're gonna show this. It's only a, it's only a black and white print. Uh, you know, I'm just nervous as hell. And I looked around. And, you know, it's 1977, and it's an audience full of geriatrics. <laughs> I mean, literally blue-haired ladies. And I said, well, how, how is this going to work, Roger? And he says, well, you know, on days when they're not, or actually John told me, he said, on days when uh, they're only showing commercials, they'll let Roger test for free. <laughs> and Today, it turned out to be Geritol. <laughs> so, I went to Roger and I said, Roger, this is the wrong audience. And he said, Ron, a laugh is a laugh. And He was absolutely right because the movie tested uh, and, yeah, sure, there were the dials that went up and down and we looked at the charts later and so forth, but mostly it was the reaction from the audience. It was supposed to be a comedy. And I tell you, when we, when we, you know, As we refined it, there were reshoots, some added stuff, that crazy yeah. crash through the house at the inn. All, you know, the thing, it kept getting better and better, and I, I, I would say that when we later tested the movie for the appropriate audience, Roger was absolutely right. A laugh is a laugh, and we were, the jokes were landing in all the same places. But, but when the movie was over, the little old ladies in front of us got up, and we had seen them laughing. We had seen them laughing, and they just said, oh, that was just disgusting and
0: rude. <laughs>
7: <laughs> there, uh, that, that place is. The building is still there. It, it was. It was called Preview House, not called Harmony Gold. But uh, w- one of the uh, w- one of the pictures that that Roger tested there uh, was a, a very serious movie about mental illness called um, "I Never Promised You a Rose Garden." Yeah. And uh, the tests came back, and they they just they flatlined. I mean, it started out, and then it went down to the bottom, and it stayed there. And Roger was couldn't understand it was not a bad picture I mean he couldn't figure out why it had such a terrible reaction Well, it turned out that the the, the free day that he got was the day that the mental patients from Cedars-Sinai would have their outings and at their outings they would go to preview house and play with the dials so the last thing they wanted to see was a picture about a mental institution
6: I got to jump in with the test screening for Slumber Party Massacre because it was a doozy. Do you remember that? Do you remember where we tested Slumber Party Massacre, where we previewed it? It was on Hollywood Boulevard.
3: Oh, yes. There was a theater on Hollywood Boulevard. a little east of the main theaters. Yes.
6: Yeah. We're talking a rough neighborhood. The, yeah. the World Theater, the late, yeah, right. the late lamented
7: World right. Theater. Three okay. pictures for a, a dollar. A dollar.
6: <laughs> okay. and, uh, so we went in, and there was a pretty good crowd. And uh, I don't think we sat together, but I sort of put myself in the audience. And they were raucous and talking back and yelling. <laughs> and uh, the guy behind me all the way through was going, making a <laughs> drill noise, right? And at a certain point uh, at the end, where he's going in the pool, the guy behind me goes, that dude comes out of this pool again, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't leave.
2: Give me and back my doll. I, t- I was
6: sort of appalled at all the violence reaction, they loved it and the killing, and I went out and Roger was by the popcorn. and You could hear them inside screaming. And I said, "Oh my God, Roger, what have we done?" And he said, "We've made the best preview in New World history."
5: I have the worst preview in New World history. Roger, we a movie called Death Sport. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Woo-hoo.
5: And Still has its fans. There had to be reshoots, and Roger said, "If you reshoot this, rewrite it, recut it." you can make your high school musical. So we went, we shot, we, we spent you know a lot of time and we snuck it at the Egyptian <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard and it was not playing well. People were yelling at the screen. And at one point, David Carradine says, we will now have our duel. And somebody in the audience yells, it's about fucking time. <laughs> And then, while the duel is going on, they close the curtain. Oh. And I went and said, the curtain's closed. And he just says, yeah. <laughs> and afterwards, we stood on the sidewalk for, you know, what should we do, Roger? And he goes, oh, just ship it.
2: <laughs> so John, what would you say is the greatest lesson that you learned from Roger Corman?
1: <laughs> Just, uh, you know, do the best you can. Get out there and, and make the picture. I mean, you know, no matter what's going on, go, get out there and, and finish that No movie. matter
3: what happens, keep shooting. That's it.
5: <laughs> keep shooting.
2: Ron, w- what about you? What What's your biggest take home from all Yeah, Honestly,
4: it was the connection with the audience. I'm joking about, I mean, the ASI thing was that was what it was. But I actually, the, I, I continue to, as a director with Control and Final Cut and all these kinds of things, I really continue to test the movies. And it was the first time that I, I really recognized that there's this connection, also because of the added scenes that were done as a result of all of this that I had some objections to, but I later saw how much they added to the film and so I realized how much there was to learn in post production, and I continued it. I mean, whether I was directing a TV movie or a feature for a studio, I really test and I want to understand, you know, what the what the relationship is because it is at the end of the day for the audience, and this is why Roger knows the audience that New World is serving and wants to deliver for them. And in and around that, you put as much as your of yourself and your ideas and so forth into that. But you're, there's a duality to this, and you, you know you're offering something that's supposed to be meaningful, and you need to understand the ways in which it is or is not working for for that audience.
0: Fantastic, yeah.
2: Joe. What would be your number one takeaway from? Well,
7: that? I, I mean, you have a lot of takeaways, especially you know uh, as the years go by. But but since the one thing that always comes to mind when I'm making another picture is that. Uh, I'll I'll never be working for anybody again, uh, who knows as much about movies as Roger did when I was starting out, and when you, uh, you what you hope to do is you hope to work for people who can help you because they know more than you do. Unfortunately, the problem is that when you, the more movies you make and the more executives you meet the more you realize that there are al- almost none who know as much about movies as you do. And so there are no, they're n- they're no help. They're, they're, in fact, they're a hindrance, and you spend a lot of time trying to please people who don't know what they want, and if they did, they wouldn't know how to express it anyway. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think all of us feel that the best years of our creative lives were spent working for somebody who knew more than we did, and that was Roger. Yeah.
2: Alan, you know it's coming. Uh, I'm going to
5: continue in, in Joe's vein because there's a connection here. And Roger sensed that with the people he hired. One, we were incredibly hard workers. If you look at, I went and looked at all our IMDb's, it's scary (laughs) how much work we've done. (laughs) You work 24 seven, and over that time, Joe and John and I probably saw in the five years we worked for Roger about 1500 to 1800 movies. You know, we watched them, we worked on them, we lived and breathed it. In a way, we were a religious order. and what was on the screen was the most important. and we were in this bubble of people who were ex-film students. And luckily we had Yoda, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger sensed that, and uh, he he let us run free and I'll just remember you know, showing him a comic book from Punk magazine that said, Mutant Monster Beach Party and I had a picture of Joey Ramone and he looked at it and he said those are our boys
2: (laughs) Amy what about you? What's your one takeaway you'd like to share
6: with us? Well, it's tough to have one I think probably the most important one for me was that when he told me that when I wanted to write new, an original script, Love Letters. And he said that it had to have either sex, violence, or humor. Now, before you denigrate that, think that every Tarantino movie you ever saw has all three of them. <laughs> right? And that changed my entire career. I had come off a of taxi driver, a kind of art film. I had come out of MIT making documentaries. All of a sudden I thought, this is a mass medium, and we are here to entertain. We are here to move, to entertain, and I never made anything again that didn't have at least one of those three (laughs) elements in it. (laughs) And it makes me a little impatient with many Oscar nominees to this day, lately, because They don't necessarily entertain me. I I want to be entertained and moved and That's I think the most important thing Roger taught me
2: Roger the world of cinema owes you a great debt And we want to thank you for the mentorship, the sharing of your wisdom, and the entertainment you've provided and continue to provide through the years. Thank you, John Davis and Ron Howard, Joe Dante, Alan Harfish, Amy Holden Goat, and Mr. Roger Corman.
1: Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.